O Jesus, Master Carpenter of Nazareth, who on the cross through wooden nails has wrought man's full salvation, wield well thy tools in our hearts, thy workshop, that we who come to thee rough-hewn may be fashioned into a truer beauty by thy hand, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, well, now that you're awake and alert, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to continue with our study of these parables of Jesus, and we're going to begin today in Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 44, with these two parables about the kingdom of God. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his own hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph? and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We said last week that Jesus has begun to teach the crowds in parables, and that is because of a rising opposition on the part of the crowds, but in particular on the part of the Jewish religious leaders. And we looked at some of these parables. They're all parables, Jesus said, about the kingdom of God. I pointed out that there are different kinds of parables. There are parables of wisdom and folly. There are parables of salvation. And there are parables that are meant to describe the nature of the kingdom of God. And the parables that we have been looking at are really about that. It's not all that surprising that these should be the first parables that we encounter in the Gospel of Matthew because we said that the, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is really about the kingship of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's how this Gospel begins, with John the Baptist in the wilderness preaching a message of repentance and telling the people that they needed to turn from their wickedness because the kingdom of God had come. And of course, the kingdom had come because the king himself had arrived. So all of these parables are really about the nature of the kingdom of God. Beginning in chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus told the parable of the sower, or the parable of the four soils. That explains to us how it is that the kingdom of God begins in a person's life. Jesus said, a sower went out to sow seed, and some of that seed, which represents the gospel message, fell on various types of soil. Some on the hard path, 
some on the rocky soil, some on the soil that was choked out by the thorns and the brambles, and some fell on good soil. And Jesus said that soil corresponds with different types of hearts that people have. The gospel message is preached, and that gospel falls on people's hearts. Some people's hearts are hardened. Some are rocky. There's not much depth to them. They show an initial sign of life, but then when difficulty or privation or persecution comes into the life of a person, they fall away. Jesus said some people's hearts are like that soil that is choked out by the thorns and the thistles. Uh, they are initially excited about the gospel. There is the potential for growth, but the desire for vainglory and for riches and for wealth and possessions, those things choke out the life of the kingdom. And then Jesus said some of the time, only a fraction of the time, the message falls on good soil. This is the heart that is receptive to the gospel. It takes root and it produces fruit. And that's, he says, how you can know that a person is truly a believer if there is that spiritual fruit in their life. So that parable was really about the beginnings of the kingdom, how the kingdom takes root in a person's life. Jesus then went on to talk about the parable of the weeds. He said that a farmer went out and he sowed seed in his field, but that night an enemy came and the enemy sowed weeds among the wheat. And the workers came in the next day and they said to the master, what should we do? Should we tear up the weeds that have been sown with the wheat? And the master says, no, you can't tell the difference between the two. You've got to wait until they reach maturity. And at the harvest time, you'll be able to tell the difference. Then you can go out and you can tear up and you can gather the wheat into barns and the weeds we can go ahead and dispose of. You can burn them with unquenchable fire. And Jesus said that is a picture of the opposition that comes to the kingdom oftentimes. That what does the enemy want to do? But sow into the kingdom of God, into the, the, the church of God, those who are in opposition. The enemy wants to infiltrate our ranks. So that parable was really about the opposition to the kingdom. We said that no good thing ever comes into this world without some kind of opposition. And if that is true in smaller things, it is certainly going to be true when it comes to such things as the kingdom of God. And so that's what Jesus was talking about in that parable. Then he went on to talk about the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, of how the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds, but when it is planted, it grows into a great bush, a bush so great that even the birds can come down and nest in it. That he talked about the leaven, for example, the leaven and how the leaven is worked into a batch of dough until it finds its way permeating the entire batch. And Jesus said that's the way it is going to be with the kingdom. In spite of the opposition, the kingdom will nevertheless continue to grow. And eventually, in the end, when Christ comes in his glory, even the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So those parables are all about the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom, the opposition to the kingdom, and the eventual triumph of the kingdom. Well, in the parable that I've just read to you today, this parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl, what Jesus is describing is the value of the kingdom. He's comparing the kingdom to a treasure, a treasure that is of great value and great worth. So we're going to take a look at this today. Uh, these two parables are making basically the same point that the message of the kingdom of God is a message of infinite value and worth. And he talks about two people. In verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. In verse 45, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had 
and bought it. Now, these two parables, as I said, make the same point, but there is a slight difference between them. In the case of the first individual, he's not looking for the treasure. He's not looking for anything of great wealth or great value. He is simply out there wandering through a field, and he happens to come upon it. The idea is that he sort of comes along, and he sort of trips over something, and he goes back, and he takes a closer look at what he tripped over, and lo and behold, he discovers a treasure. It's a treasure that's been hidden in a field. What's the first thing that he does? He covers it back up, because he didn't want anybody else to get it. He recognizes that it's a treasure, and then he does what? He goes and he buys the field. But he's not looking for the treasure. He, he comes upon it by chance. In the case of the second individual, he's actually looking. He is a merchant in search of treasure. In this case, in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value does what? He goes and sells all that he has, and he buys it. Well, if you think about it, that really corresponds to the way that many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, some people are not looking for Jesus Christ. They're really not. They're sort of just going along in their life. Everything's going just fine. They're not particularly interested in spiritual matters. And for one reason or another, they encounter someone or they hear a message on the radio or they pick up the Gideon Bible in their hotel room. It happens any number of ways. And lo and behold, what they discover is something that they actually have been searching for all their life, but they didn't know it. They sort of stumble over the gospel. And we've all known people like that. They really weren't looking for anything. I, I know a man who was invited to a Billy Graham crusade on one occasion. Wasn't particularly interested in going, but somebody invited him. He was friends with this person, didn't want to insult the person, so he went to the Billy Graham crusade, not really expecting to find anything. And lo and behold, he heard the message of the gospel and it changed his life. He's like that man walking through the field and he sort of trips over it. And when he goes back and takes a closer look, lo and behold, it's a treasure. That may be the case with you. Well, there are other people who recognize that there's just something missing in their life. Something is not right. Something is amiss. They may have everything that the world says should make them happy. They may have a, a fine education. They may have uh, money. They may have position. They may have power. They may have respect. They may have a fine family. But still, there is just something missing in their life. The famous philosopher Blaise Pascal once said that there is in everybody's life a Christ-shaped void. I always say it's like a puzzle, a great puzzle. You know, one of those puzzles that has 10,000 pieces. And, and, and you work on it for months and months and months, and you get to the end of it, and there's only one piece left that you have to put in. It's right there in the center, and lo and behold, the piece is missing. <laughs> and it does not matter what you do. You can go out and buy another puzzle with another picture on it, and you... There's only one piece that fits. And, and the bad part about that is that after all that time, all that effort, if you don't find that one piece, it's incomplete. There are some people's lives that are, that are like that. They have every other piece but that, that one piece right there in the center that would make their life complete. It's just, it's just not there. And so what do they do? They get down on their hands and knees and they, they look under the couch and under the carpet and they look everywhere desperately searching for that one piece that will make the picture complete. Until eventually they find it. And they're not satisfied until they do. That's the case with the second person. That's the way it is with some people's lives. They recognize early on that something is not there. 
So there is a slight difference between these two individuals. Jesus says some people stumble upon the kingdom, they're not looking for it. Others recognize that there is something of greater value out there and they desperately seek for it until they find it. But what these two have in common is that once they find it, they both recognize the value of what they found. That's the point that Jesus is really making here. However you come upon the message of the kingdom, in order to be a true believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to recognize the value of what you have found. And what Jesus goes on to describe really is the character of the person who, when they discover the treasure, recognizes its worth. So both of these individuals recognize the value of what they found. Jesus says there's something else about them. Having found it and having recognized the value of the kingdom of God, they do what? They are determined to get it. And they are determined to get it no matter what the cost. This is a picture of a person who comes into the kingdom of God. And as I said with the parables for the past several weeks, the key here is finding your place in it. If you're a Christian, you're in one of those two categories. Maybe you weren't looking for the kingdom of God. Maybe you were raised in the church your whole life, but all of a sudden, one day, you heard the message in a way that you'd never heard the message before. You heard it with spiritual ears, and all of a sudden, the light came on for you. I've known many people like that who were churched, but they were not converted. Been going to the church their whole life, but then all of a sudden, one day, somebody explained the gospel to them in a compelling way that they had never heard before, and with spiritual ears they heard, and for the first time, their hearts were strangely warmed. That was the experience of John Wesley. You probably know the story of John Wesley. I'll just repeat it briefly for you. John Wesley, of course, is a very famous evangelist of the 18th century, had a profound impact on Great Britain. Many historians hold that the only reason Great Britain did not go through a reign of terror and a revolution the way that the French went through in which they killed their monarchs, the only reason that Britain didn't go through that was because in the years preceding the French Revolution in England there had been the preaching of John Wesley. Wesley was an extraordinary individual. He was a child of the rectory. Uh, he had been raised in a vicarage. His father was a, a well-known uh, clergyman in the Church of England, a biblical scholar, an expert on the Old Testament. And his mother, in an age in which this was most unusual, was really a spiritual guide to people. Um, people sought out um, Susanna Wesley for her wisdom and for her guidance on spiritual matters. So he grew up in a very devout home. And because his father had been a clergyman and he'd been, you know, sort of raised in the church, he went off to Oxford University. He did extremely well at Oxford University, took first-class honors. While he was there, he founded an organization called the Holy Club. Not the kind of club that I would have gone to in college necessarily, or many of us, but nevertheless, that was the kind of person that he was. He was a doer of good works. He took care of the, the down and outers uh, in Oxford and in London. He was a very devout man. He memorized the entire book of Psalms by heart. Memorized the entire book of Psalms by heart. Very devout man. Uh, great things were expected of him. Uh, he was ordained as a clergyman by the Bishop of Oxford, 
and he was sent off to America to convert the heathen. And he landed in Savannah, Georgia, which he must have thought was a pretty good place. There must have been a lot of heathens in Savannah, Georgia at the time. And he decided to start his ministry there. And as I said, great things were expected from this young man, and he was an absolute catastrophe. It was a disaster. He didn't do very well at all. His congregation didn't like him, and he didn't particularly like his congregation. And then he got in trouble with a young woman. Uh, this young woman, he began to sort of court her, or at least string her along, and she became interested in him, but he refused to propose marriage to her. He just sort of, you know, kept her at arm's length, but, you know, flirted with her from time to time. And, and um, she got a little frustrated with that. Her parents took her away for a time. When she came back, she was married to another man. She presented herself for Holy Communion at Christ Church in Savannah, where he was the pastor, and Wesley refused her communion because he felt betrayed. Now, you have to understand that in the colony of Georgia, this was the state church. So he had formally and publicly excommunicated a prominent member of the community for personal reasons. In those days, you could be sued for libel. And she was sued. He was sued. And he had no choice but to flee the colony of Georgia. And he came to Charleston and took refuge with the rector of St. Philip's Church. I mean, this is the sort of thing that happened in those days. At any rate, he was eventually recalled to England. He went on a trip back to England, and while he was traveling back to England, he encountered a group of Moravians. These were German Christians. Uh, they were the followers of Martin Luther and Martin Bootser and others and so forth. And the Moravians were very impressed by Wesley. I mean, he was an intelligent man, Oxford-educated, clergyman, and so forth. New Greek, new Hebrew, new Latin, new all of those things. They were in awe of Wesley's ability. But they noticed something about Wesley. While he had all of this head knowledge, there was nothing in his heart. And they told him that. They said that they thought he knew a great deal about Jesus, but his problem was that he didn't know Jesus. Well, Wesley was offended by that. But he got back to England, and the more he thought about it, the more he realized those Moravians had something that he just did not have. He didn't know what to do about it. And the story goes that one day he was wandering through the Aldersgate section of London, and he happened along a little chapel, a Moravian chapel. And he wandered in, and the minister was reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to Romans. On that passage, the just shall live by faith. And when Wesley heard that, and he heard these words ringing down through the centuries, Paul's words, through Luther, down to him, he said, suddenly I felt my heart strangely warmed. And he said, I didn't simply believe that Jesus existed, I believed on Jesus. And it made all the difference. And he went out, and he had a profound impact upon the world. We're still feeling it even to this day. He had his heart strangely warmed. But he knew something was missing, something was not right. And he looked for it until he found it. For some of you, that's the way it is. For some of you, just happened upon it. For others, you've been looking for it your whole life. But when you find it, your heart is strangely warmed. You've had that experience. Well, if you found it, then you've recognized the value of it. And once you recognize the value of it, what do you have to do? Well, you have to do what the two people in this parable did. You have to acquire it for yourself. This is not something that you can keep at arm's length. 
In both of these circumstances, we are told that when the person found the treasure, having recognized the value of the treasure, they determined to have the treasure. One went out and sold everything that he had and bought the field, and the other went out and sold everything that he had and bought the pearl. That's another aspect, you see, of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Once you recognize who he is, once you recognize the value of having a relationship with him, then you have to be prepared if you're really going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he makes this point clear very often. If you're going to really be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to determine to have him no matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, even if it means selling everything that you have in order to follow him. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? A rich young man came up to Jesus on one occasion and he said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Now, I say that that is the universal question. That is the pressing question that every single person in this room wants an answer to. Now, salvation may mean something different to you than it does to me. But the bottom line is every single person in this room is looking for serenity. You're looking for that peace which passes human understanding, the peace that passes human knowing. You're looking for perfect contentment. And when you see people that have it, you long for it. And that's what this young man came to Jesus. He said, that's what I want to know. I want to know, how can I be saved? How can I have that? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. Now, this young man was like Wesley when Wesley was young. And he said, yes, yes, I, I know all the commandments. And furthermore, I've kept them. Every single one since I was a kid. Now, when we hear that sort of thing, we think to ourselves, what a self-righteous individual. Who does he think he is? But the interesting thing is that the way the story unfolds, everything indicates that he really felt that he had done it. He, he was not bragging. He really felt that he had been an upright, upstanding individual. And there are many people right here, perhaps even in this room, who feel the same way. I, I'm an upright, upstanding member of the community, raised in the church my whole life, been confirmed at the hands of a bishop and apostolic succession, all of those things. I'm, I'm a good person. So why am I not content? Jesus, what, what's missing? Jesus said, well, if you've done all of that, there's only one thing you need to do. Go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. And we're told that the young man was downcast. His countenance fell for he had great wealth. And he went away filled with sorrow. Now, at that point, what do we expect Jesus to do? Well, at that point, what we expect Jesus to do is say, oh, hey, hey, hold on, Just come, come on back. Maybe it was a little hard on you. You know, I'm just, geez, you know, don't worry about giving up everything. Let, let's work toward the tithe. <laughs> well, that's not what Jesus says. The text says Jesus looked at him and loved him, but he let him go. Because, you see, that young man said that he had kept all the commandments, and in reality, he had failed to keep the very first one, the one without which you break all the others. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And this young man did have another god. It was his possessions. It was his money. 
And Jesus said, well, there's only one thing that you need to find true contentment, to try and sue salvation, to, f- to find the treasure. Go and give everything away and come take hold of this treasure. And the man wasn't willing to do it. See, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to recognize that the gospel is a treasure of infinite value. And once you find it, whether you've stumbled across it or you've been seeking it all your life, once you find it and recognize its value, you have to be prepared to take hold of it no matter what it takes. And if there's something else that is controlling you, something else that is standing in the way, you've got to be prepared to sell everything that you've got in order to what? Possess it. That's what Jesus was saying in this parable. Now, if that sounds like a hard message to you, I understand it. It is a hard message. But whether it's a hard message or not is irrelevant. The question is, is it the truth? And obviously, it's the truth that's coming from the mouth of the Savior himself. That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. Both men went and did what? They sold everything that they had. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 13 and turn back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. What we'll discover is that this is really nothing new. Beginning at verse 18 of chapter 4, when walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. What did it mean for a fisherman to leave his nets? It was his livelihood, wasn't it? In other words, for these two men, following Jesus meant giving up their livelihood, if necessary. Look at verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So that's the cost of following Jesus Christ, my friends. It means that Jesus Christ must be first in your life and everything else and everybody else comes in a descending way order afterward. Why? Because he's the treasure of infinite worth, without which you're never content, and for which you are willing to sell everything in order to possess it. Now, having recognized the value of the treasure, and having determined to have it at all costs, they then go out and sell everything they have, and they personally Acquire it. I say this is like drawing on your account. If somebody were to come, I used to say years ago, put a million dollars in your account, but there are people actually probably in the room who are millionaires here. But let's say somebody goes out and puts a billion dollars in your account. (laughs) Would that change your life? Somebody just dropped a billion dollars into your bank account. Would that change your life? This is, this is not a hard question, folks. That's not going to change your life. This is going to change your life, isn't it? Maybe. If somebody puts a billion dollars into your account, it only changes your life if you draw on the account. 
If you live your whole life without ever taking any of that money out and using it, it doesn't make any difference in your life whatsoever. What Jesus Christ did by his death upon the cross was, in a sense, he deposited everything that was necessary for salvation into your account. But unless you personally draw on that by faith, it does nothing. Christ, in terms of your life, has died in vain. And so these two men, one seeking for the treasure, one finding the treasure, but once they find it, they recognize its value. They're determined to acquire it. They sell everything that they have in order to get it. And once they have the money, they go out and they take possession of it. Have you taken possession of the gospel in your own life? This is why I say it's not enough to go through the rites and the ceremonies of the church. It's not enough to have been raised in the church, to be baptized, to be confirmed. All of those things are wonderful and they are assets. But for many people, as I said this past Sunday, for many people they are nothing more than rites of passage, like a young woman making her debut. This is a faith that must be owned personally. You may get into the White House on somebody else's coattails, but my friends, you never get into the kingdom of God on somebody else's coattails. You will never get into the kingdom of God simply because your husband was a good husband or a good Christian or your mother was a good Christian or your spouse, your wife, whoever it is. You don't get into the kingdom. of This is something that once you find it, you have to take possession of it yourself. Have you done that? That's the great question. That's the pressing question of these parables. Faith, true faith, has three elements to it. And uh, those three elements uh, can be described in terms of three Latin terms. The first is the word noticia, the second is a census, and the third is fiducia. Here's what they mean. Noticia means knowledge. In order to truly believe in something, you need to understand what it is. You need to understand the content of the thing. You need to understand what it's all about, what it's here for, what its purpose is. Second thing is that you have to agree with it. You have to recognize it and its value for your life. And the third thing, fiducia, is you have to trust it. That's the way it is with Jesus Christ, you see. You can see this in the creed. In the creed, we have noticia. Every Sunday, we stand and we profess our faith in the words of the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. And what do we say? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. That's God the Father. We understand as Christians that there is God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. Second thing we say we believe in is, and we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and on the third day raised from the dead, and he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Now that's Jesus Christ. Pretty good and and succinct description of his life and what he came into the world to do. We understand that. So we say we believe in that. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son is worshipped and adored and glorified. 
And we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We understand that that is the content of the Christian faith. In order to be a Christian, you have to understand what Christianity is. That's why we say the creed. That's the head knowledge. But it's possible, you see, to understand that that's what Christianity is all about and still not be committed to Christianity. Listen, I went to seminary in the Episcopal Church. I had professors who understood what the creed said, but they didn't believe it. It is possible, you see, for a person to understand the content of the faith, but still not be committed to it. And that's why there's this second element to faith. You've got to understand what Christianity is, the head knowledge, but then the second part is you have to agree with it. You have to say, yes, I, I, I do believe that. I, I do believe that there is a God, a creator of the heavens and the earth. We are not here as the result of some sort of cosmic accident, some blind evolutionary process. No, we, we are here because God has determined us to be here. There is a right and wrong. There is an arbiter of truth in the universe. You have to say, yes, I, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He came into this world to die for sinners. You have to believe that, yes, there is a Holy Spirit and His job is to convict the world of sin and righteousness, and I understand that. Not enough to simply believe that these things exist. You have to believe in these things, but then... There's still a third element. You can say, yes, I believe all of that's true. I still don't want a part of it. I believe it's all true, but, but I, I, I really don't want to commit myself to it because if I commit myself to it, it's going to necessitate a change. And quite frankly, I don't want to change. I like things the way they are. Jesus said, I have to give up everything and follow him. Or at least not allow these things to be idols in my life. I, I, I'm not prepared for that. I'm not prepared to put Jesus Christ first. I understand that that is what it takes to be a Christian, but I am not prepared for that yet. You see, you've got the first two parts, but you don't have that last part. And all three parts are necessary in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what these two parables are teaching. These two individuals, what? Discovered the treasure, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field. They recognized its value. And they were determined to take hold of it, no matter what it cost. Let me tell you something. If you commit your life to Jesus Christ, really commit your life to Jesus Christ, and as I said, it may be that you've been raised in the church your whole life, but you've never really made that kind of a personal commitment, prepared to give up, if necessary, everything, or at least use everything that you have for the sake of Christ and His glory. Let me tell you something. If you ever make that deal, you will never, ever be disappointed. I have never in all my life, in all my ministry, ever made a, met a person who made that kind of a commitment to Jesus Christ and has ever looked back and said it wasn't worth it. Never met a single person has ever made that kind of a commitment and looked back and said, ooh, I made a mistake. It wasn't worth it. Never met a single person, but I have met all kinds of people who've not made that commitment and had lived with regret seeking for something that they've never found, this elusive hope. See, you have to own it for yourself one day. Now, in the case of the thief on the cross, 
That came at the very last moment. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I always say that the thief on the cross, the penitent thief on the cross, was the luckiest man who ever lived. Let me tell you something. The Romans executed people on a regular basis in the ancient world. They oftentimes would line the streets going into Rome as a, as a warning, in the same way that they would hang pirates down here at White Points Gardens as a, as a warning to people. Now, that's what they did in ancient Rome. But of all the days, on all the crosses, on all the hills, in all the Roman Empire, in which man could have been executed, this man was executed next to the Son of God. And when he saw the way that Jesus reacted, people were reviling him, spitting on him. When he asked for a drink, they gave him vinegar to drink. They reviled him, they hated him. And what did he do? They called down curses on him, he called down blessings on them. And when he saw that, he recognized in Jesus a treasure. The other thief didn't recognize the value of the treasure. And he continued to curse Jesus. But he recognized the value of Jesus and he said, do you not care to the other thief? We're here because we deserve it. This man has done nothing. He recognized the value. And then in the last moments of his life, he was determined to have this treasure I'll give up everything I have. I have nothing to give, but, but what I have I give to you. Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and said, Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Have you done it? It's not enough to be raised in the church. It's not enough to be confirmed. It's not even enough to be baptized. If you think it's enough to be baptized, Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler were altar boys. It's not enough. Have you owned this faith for yourself? Have you recognized in Jesus the treasure beyond all measure? That's what this parable is all about. Well, Jesus follows up these two parables, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the treasure of the great pearl, with another parable, parable of the net. And this one is very different in tone, although it's not entirely unfamiliar because it sounds remarkably similar to the parable that brackets these, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Well, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Before we get into this parable, let me go ahead and define a term for you. And the term is at the end of verse 49. It is the word righteous. At the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, many people think to be righteous means to be perfect, means to be good. I want to submit to you that that is not the biblical understanding of righteous. It's not, let's put it this way, it's an aspect of the biblical understanding of righteous, but it's not the essence. To be a righteous individual means to be in a right relationship with God. That's what it means to be righteous. 
So God's going to separate out those who do not have a relationship with him and are living according to the world and its evil practices from those who have a right relationship with God. And how do you come into a right relationship with God? Jesus has just told you in the parables that precede. (laughs) By faith. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace through faith, not by your works, but by faith. But faith that has those three elements to it. So what happens if a person stumbles upon the treasure, recognize the pearl of great value, understand that it's a treasure beyond measure, but still desires not to have it, or determines that they don't want to go out and spend everything they have in order to acquire it. What's going to happen to such a person? Well, that's what this parable is about. It's the fate of those who refuse to acquire the treasure. And it is a somber parable indeed. It's a parable about the final judgment, which is exactly, as I said, what the parable of the wheat and the tares is about. And they both end in the same way, basically. And he will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. The other parable ends this way. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the wheat first, the weeds first, and bind them into bundles to be burned. Now, what is this parable meant to teach us? Well, it's meant to teach us, my friends, that whether we like it or not, there is coming judgment. This is something else we profess a belief in every Sunday, and we believe that he will come again to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. This parable teaches us we don't like to think about it, ministers don't like to preach about it, congregations don't like to hear about it, but what the parable teaches, and we can't avoid it because Jesus is teaching these words, don't blame me. Don't say, I hate when I, that Miller gets on that whole business about judgment. I just can't stand it. I wish he'd get on to something better. Listen, you can't avoid it. Jesus is talking about it. And one of the things that Jesus makes very clear is that there is a judgment. There is a judgment. And if you think about it, we want judgment. The world requires judgment. When you see all of the injustice and cruelty that has happened over the pages of history, Don't you want to know that in the end, somebody is going to set things right? Don't you? Of course you do. There is something that wells up within us that says, yes, injustice has to be punished. Those who have been afflicted need to be redeemed. There is something within us that requires justice. If we are living in a world that has no justice, my friends, we are living in a world that is meaningless. Furthermore, I want to suggest to you that judgment's not always a bad thing. Judgment's only a bad thing if the judgment's against you. I've said that before. Judgment's only a bad thing if it's against you. If the judgment is in your favor, what is that? That's not condemnation, that's vindication. But one thing Jesus makes very clear is that a judgment is coming. Some will be vindicated, some will be condemned. Now, you can't avoid it. The world will say, well, you know... You can't avoid it. Jesus makes it very clear. He says this. He says the judgment will be thorough. The angels are going to do what? Separate the wheat from the tares. 
the good fish from the bad fish. It's going to be a thorough and complete separation. In other words, there is a mixture now. The wheat grows up among the tares. And yes, there's a mixture when you draw in the net of the good fish and the bad fish. There's a mixture now, but one day the judgment is coming and the judgment will be permanent. It will be complete, thorough, and it will be thorough. It's going to be some time before we get there, but keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 13 and skip ahead to Matthew chapter 25 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read through verses 1 through 13 and then 31 and following. This is another one of the parables that Jesus tells. This is a mixture. This, this is a parable of the ten virgins. It's sometimes called a parable of wisdom and folly, but it's really a parable about salvation. Jesus says this, chapter 25, verse 1, that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Weddings were big deals in those days. They took place over the course of many days, particularly in a Jewish context, and oftentimes they took place in the evening. And so the ten virgins, these are the members of the bridal party, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps as the bridegroom was delayed because they were taking pictures. And it takes a long time to take pictures. They all became drowsy and slept. That's not in your version, it's in my version. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The door shut. And they pound on the outside and they don't get in. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me food. I was thirsty, and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed Me. I was naked, and you clothed Me. I was sick, and you visited Me. I was in prison and hungry, and you fed Me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for all the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And here's the crucial verse, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Now, folks, it can't be any clearer than that. Somebody can turn around and say, I cannot believe that God would ever send anybody to hell. You ever heard people say that? People sometimes say to me, I just cannot believe in a God who would send anyone to hell. And what I say in response to that is, oh, yes, you can. <laughs> what you mean is you don't want to believe in a God who would send anybody to hell. Isn't that what they really mean? They could believe in such a God. That's why they're resisting it. But the question is not, my friends, whether we want to believe in such a God. The question is, does such a God exist? And if he does, that is the God with whom we have to deal. And what does Jesus say? There will be a separation. Sheep from goats, wheat from tares, good fish from bad fish. Does it get any clearer? And he keeps saying it over and over and over again. Why does he keep saying it over and over again? Because people won't listen. That's what Jesus is saying, you see. So in this parable, what Jesus is making very clear is that there is a judgment. The judgment will be thorough. The judgment will be permanent. And here is the worst part. And only Jesus could say it. God forbid that any of his ministers and on their own authority could say it. But Jesus says it. He says the fate of the wicked is dreadful. He describes it in terms of anguish, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. And here's the worst part about hell, whatever hell is. You know, we have these pictures of Dante's Inferno and so forth. And, you know, all these medieval pictures of hell are not particularly accurate. This is describing a state, a conscious state, which is just so horrible it can only be described in this way. Do we spend all eternity being poked by little demons? I think a lot of that stuff is just, you know, made up. Hell, my friends, is a complete separation from God. It is a complete separation from everybody else. It is a place of torment. And part of what makes it so terrible, part of what makes it torment, is that we remember what we could have had. Do not think for one minute that when you die, you simply pass into oblivion. There is nothing in the scripture that teaches that. What it teaches us is that you and I, having been created for eternity, will go on for eternity, either in a place of blessedness with the Lord or in a place of complete separation from Him and from everybody else and from everything else that we knew we will remember we could have had, but we decided to forfeit in order to have the things of this world. Jesus told another parable about this. It was about a poor man and a rich man. And the rich man feasted sumptuously at his table, and the poor man sat at his gate and longed for the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, Jesus said, the dogs came and licked his sores. He said the rich man died, and the poor man died. The poor man died and went to paradise. The rich man died and went to Hades. And the rich man looked up and he saw the poor man up there in Abraham's bosom in a place of peace and rest and refreshment. And he says, oh, tell Lazarus, the, the poor man, to come down and, 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 and dip his finger in some cool water and quench my tongue, for I am in anguish. And the answer comes back, no. There is a chasm fixed between you and him, and he cannot pass from there to you, and you cannot pass from there to him. Remember. That's what Jesus says. Remember that in your life you enjoyed good things,
things, and in his life he enjoyed bad things. Oh, my word, that is the worst thing a person could ever hear. Remember. Remember that day when you sat there and you were convicted in your heart and you knew that the message was coming through to you. It was a message of a treasure, a message of redemption and forgiveness. God was willing to forgive all that you had ever done. And all you needed to do was place your trust in him. And you said, no, remember. Can you imagine how terrible that would be to remember that? My friends, that's hell. How many of you have ever done anything in your life that you regret and you are haunted by the remembrance of it? You know what Jesus Christ comes to do? He comes to wipe the slate clean. He comes to wipe the slate clean. That's what he's offering you today, the opportunity to be completely forgiven. Every shameful thing, every wicked thing, every terrible thing you've ever done, every impure thought you've ever had, Jesus Christ comes into the world and he says, come to me and I will make you holy. I will declare you righteous. Place your faith in me. I'm the treasure of infinite value. Sell everything that you have. Come take hold of me and I will give you everlasting life. But if you say no thanks, or not today, and you discover that tomorrow never comes, then you will spend eternity remembering what could have been. Now that is a solemn way to end, but not nearly as solemn as the way Jesus ends it. He turns to his disciples and he says, do you understand this? And they replied, yes, Lord, we understand. That's my question to you today. Do you understand this? Listen, it gives me no pleasure to stand up here and have to preach a message like that. But I preach that message because I understand and I know that this is the truth of the gospel. It need not be that way for anybody within the sound of my voice today. If you are hearing the gospel with spiritual ears for the first time, maybe you've just stumbled across this gospel, maybe you've come from another church, whatever it is, but you've come here and for the first time you're beginning to understand what this is really all about, then today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to recognize the pearl of great value, the treasure of infinite worth. Today is the day to recognize it, to determine to have it, and to place your faith in Jesus Christ, to come to Him, to admit that you're a sinner, to beg for His mercy and for His forgiveness, and to be ushered into eternal life so that one day when the great separation comes, Jesus can turn to you and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. That, my friends, is the good news. Do you understand this? You've made it very clear. <laughs> then I've done my job. Let us pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus. The parables, uh, we said, are simple, but they are not simplistic. In fact, the parables have a way of cutting through to bone and to marrow in a way that nothing else can. 
Grant us the grace to hear. Grant us the courage and the will to heed. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.